All right, we're up, we're lit, the engines are fired, and the window net is up, as Captain Herb would say. Welcome to episode 146 of the 5 to Go Racing Podcast here on WSBRadio.com and GoPRN.com. We're fired up after a big weekend at both Michigan International Speedway and Gateway. And we're going into Daytona. In fact, it's the last race before the playoffs, if you haven't heard, for the Cup Series anyway. Doug Fireball Turnbull here from the traffic team at 95.5 WSB. And I get to hang out with the crew of PRN sometimes. They'll, they'll be, I'm trying to think of when their next race will be. I think Vegas coming up here in a few weeks. Joined on the line today by a popular guest host and somebody that we've had last week. That is Bud Hughes, the host of Bud's Garage on WDUN AM 550 out of Gainesville. How you doing, sir? I'm doing great. I'm also your token uh, Western New Yorker, your other Western New Yorker. <laughs> I thought you were about to say you were our token white guy, and I was then going to have to turn on my video and say, well, <laughs> but but token Western New Yorker, that's better. And by the way, that's T-O-K-E-N for anybody yes. that's keeping score out there. All Thank right. you. Uh, Thank glad you. to have Bud on the line today. He's a place of Eric Von Hessler, the host of the Von Hessler Doctrine, the daily laugh-out-loud talk show in 95.5 WSB and in the podcasting world. And Eric has just been covered over with stuff. And I know he's going to be out Labor Day week, too, guys, so might have an opportunity there for us three to get together. And then on the other end of the line, too, Bud is northeast of me. Dawsonville Dan Elliott is due north of me right now, working in his race shop there, the master maker of speed in Dawsonville, Georgia. How you doing, Big Dano? Doing great. Hope everybody is. Hope everybody's staying safe right now. And um, hope that uh, everybody is uh, ready for the playoffs. Uh, sure are. And uh, that got some big stuff shaping up. We'll talk a little bit as we do some takes uh, on the Michigan race, whether it's Keselowski and Austin Dillon, that contact there that looked very strange. And considering this is a year we haven't had a ton of, of crashing in a lot of uh, the big oval tracks. And, and we'll talk about the playoffs, too, because that affected the points. And Tyler Reddick had a moment, too, that kept things fairly tight going into Daytona. Um, and i got to mention, too, that just because we pivoted to you, Dan, I saw this. I, I knew that a few weeks ago, Dale Jr. had been up in Dawsonville and doing some TV work with Chase. And I don't know if that was just for some vignettes on on NASCAR America or if it was something for the Dale Jr. download or for Dirty Mo Media. But it turns out on Peacock, which is NBC's streaming service, of course, NBC is broadcasting the NASCAR races these days. Uh, Peacock, they actually have a documentary simply entitled Chase that is hosted by Dale Earnhardt Jr. And that is going to premiere on that streaming service on uh, Thursday, I believe it is, Wednesday or Thursday, sometime this week, and then it's going to air on NBC, I believe, on Saturday. So I, I don't know, but just because I've followed Chase since he was 13 years old, and Dan, you've followed him since he was negative nine months old or so. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to learn a ton, but I saw some scenery and things in there and some uh, cars in back rooms that I hadn't seen before and some other stories, and, and Bill, Elliot, his dad, and Cindy are going to be on there too, so... Dan, you said you needed to create a segment, though, to do some teaching, right? Well, I think that um, we're all going to see some stuff that, we're, that we've not seen in a long time. And, and I know that, that this is more of a personal nature that we're probably going to hear some things that you've probably not heard before either. But, you know, it's, it'll be interesting to see this and and see what's shown and what's not shown. The sad part about it is, is a lot more of the history should be shown anyway from a lot of different 
backgrounds of drivers so that you have an idea because the thing that I've gotten caught up in here lately or the thing that I have seen and, and this is kind of off the beaten path a little bit but but it's not is um, I think Reels channel is the one that has a lot of the documentaries on the different bands from the and different people uh, even from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and and I find that very interesting. So I think more of the racing scenarios doing the same thing would be of interest to a lot of other people. I, I think so. And I, it seems to me there is a big thirst for nostalgia, although I think with, say, my generation, the millennial generation, that nostalgia seems to be more like the 80s and the 90s, either right before we grew up or as we were growing up. Right, I think that's why LeVar Burton, host of Reading Rainbow, which was popular in the 80s and 90s, was <laughs> in the Jeopardy rotation of guest hosts. Uh, I think I think it would be great though for people to go back a little bit further and see truly, you know, how you got there and how things were. I, I just hope that at the very least, and I'm sure they will, they'll put those cameras inside and let people know what a great treasure we have at Dawsonville and the Georgia Racing Hall of Fame, because. It's not many places you can go and see that many race cars up close and, and it be relatively close to the big city, so to speak. You know, that, that is quite the collection of things they have there and artifacts and the whole bit. So I hope it, I, I hope I've it drives a few more you, people to Dawsonville. I, I've got to ask you, Doug, it's in this. I hope they show Bill's first cell phone. I don't know what his <laughs> first cell phone was, but <laughs> what was, uh, what was your first cell phone, Dougie? So my first cell phone, I was a little behind my friends because a lot of them were getting those little Nokia phones. That, you know, they weren't even flip phones, right? They were just like these Nokia bricks. They were they were still pretty small compared to the first ones that were 10 or 15 years before. And so I didn't actually get a cell phone until late in high school. My mom, she already had a, a work phone, and she just gave me her personal phone just when I would go out late at night and stuff so that I'd be able to tell them when I was coming home. So it was a little Motorola tiny blue flip phone. That did not have very many features. I didn't even have text messaging at very first on that. Um, yeah, yeah, I went well, from there. My, so. That that makes me that makes me want to cry. Bud, what was your what was your first cell phone? Uh, it had a little uh, crank on the side of it. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my first cell number was C forty six, but my first cell phone I don't remember. It was a flip phone. I'm sure. Okay. But, so okay. You, you didn't my have one of the big phone. bricks. My first cell phone was a bag phone. Ah, Anybody remember, I remember those? Bag I remember phones? Those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did you, now, did you carry that phone. everywhere with you, or did you just have it? Absolutely like, like... not. I was I was embarrassed to carry that thing in the house. <laughs> <laughs> but now, when people had bag phones, though, was that something like now our cell phone is ubiquitous? I mean, we feel naked if it's not in our pocket or in our hand. So with a bag phone, is it just oh, I'll bring it in the car in case somebody calls? Or is it, like, where did people take that? You had different people that took those things. Some people took them everywhere. I wanted to stuff a helmet in mine so that at least somebody would think I was a driver or somebody famous or a football player. So, but, <laughs> but most people took those things everywhere. You'd see somebody come into a, uh, a restaurant, just an eating establishment, poo room, whatever, and, <laughs> and set those things down next to them on the floor. But um, you saw them in places, and um, what got me was, you know, the first time you got a call or made a call on one, 
most people went outside before they made a call or got a call, but some people didn't. And you sit there and listen to phone phone conversation, and then it's kind of like the girls on uh, um, what was that TV show? How rude! Um, yeah, we're um, I don't know. Yeah, um, Candace Cameron Bure was on that one. What Full House? Um, Full House, thank you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, how rude. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Oh, 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 Mary Kate and Ashley, how they twist. Yeah, go, how would? Yeah, okay, I got you now. I'm, I'm with you. I'm yeah, tracking with you. Okay. Would. Okay, thank you. Well, see, hey, we covered so, it anyway, all. We, we, haven't even, we haven't even gotten to our real five topics that you're going to take to go with you, hence the name of this, like, brilliantly named show, which, by the way, as we approach the start of the playoffs, we're turning four years old. The playoffs started, I think, in Chicago in 20, uh, or we started around Chicagoland right at the start of the playoffs in 2017. So we're, we're coming around a bit, around the bend there, and let's talk about it. We made our only trip to Michigan this year, and it's the penultimate race before the playoffs, the ultimate race being this weekend, Saturday night at Daytona, for the Cup Series playoffs. The Xfinity has a little longer to wait, and the trucks already started this weekend at Gateway. I'd love to see the bigger this hour. They could actually start playoffs about the same time, but go figure. Um, hey, let's let's talk about this. They did a little bit of a different treatment in Michigan than in the past. They treated it, instead of with PJ1 to create a second racing groove or try to, they treated it with a different kind of resin that they just called resin. And they treated the Nashville race surface with the same thing, and it had pretty good results. That Nashville race was very dynamic. It had a little bit of everything. And it seemed like this Michigan race, they at least were able to stay two and three wide a good bit. In the Cub Series race, one of the contributing factors, I think, was the fact that their horsepower was choked down. It was high downforce, low horsepower. And the Xfinity race, though, which is the package that has been most widely uh, positively viewed by the NASCAR fan base, there were all sorts of passes for the lead. I mean, there was just the, the lead felt like it was in constant jeopardy, and people were going up and taking it and having to really figure out how to pass each other. It was very dynamic. In the end, the Xfinity race, A.J. Allmendinger, who's had a heck of a week now, winning the cup race last week at Indy, and then the Xfinity race this week, he goes to victory lane and a thrilling battle with Josh Berry filling in for the injured Michael Annette. And then in the cup race... It seemed like the, I mean, Kyle Larson led the most laps. Chase Elliott led a bunch of laps. It seemed like, though, once the leader got there, they maybe never got far away, but that horsepower package and the, the arrow kept it to where they could manipulate the air and keep the lead. And once Ryan Blaney was able to gain the lead by using the choose cone, which was only brand new last season, right, the choose cone, Blaney went from fifth to the front row on a restart by choosing the bottom lane, and he was able to make the bottom lane work when he got a really good push from Kyle Busch, and he held the lead there at the end in what looked like almost super speedway racing to, for a sense. So that's kind of the lowdown of what those two races were. The Xfinity cars had more throttle response, higher horsepower. The cup cars were, it was hard for them to get away from each other, and two what I think are pretty well regarded as decent races in a sense. So Bud, let me pitch to you first. What are some of your takeaways and thoughts before we also talk about playoffs and contact on the racetrack? Well, you already you already brought up the point. You know, there wasn't much passing going on like there was in the Xfinity race, and I, I thought it was just kind of a whole whole humdrum race. I mean, it was good not to you know have anything anything goofy going on for you know at a track for uh, a week, uh, but you know it was. Uh, once once Ryan got out front and, you know, made his stand and there was 
only so many laps to go. It didn't seem like anybody could do any anything about it. There wasn't much to do about it. And it made me wonder about what what this racing, you know, this is a two mile track. So what this racing going to look like if they if they have the the same type of package at, at say uh, Atlanta next year with the, the reconfiguration and the new pavement is, you know, is it going to is it just going to be dull? Well, well, see, I think the idea. So Atlanta did have that package. Right. And with the exception that they had brake ducks. I mean, they had the 550 and the big spoiler, 550 horsepower, big spoiler. The the thing that they changed, they're changing in Atlanta by adding banking in the turns is they're trying to make them, the cars go even faster to to create that super speedway and draft effect. And with new pavement, they're not going to have the tire fall off. So I, I don't know. I, that's a great question, though. But I think it, it probably is frustrating for a driver and for an engine builder, Dan, to, to bring it into your wheelhouse and what you guys are good at. It seemed like if a, the only advantages drivers really had out there, Dan, was track position. And once the restart was settled out, you were made in the shade, especially if you were the leader. You just had to position yourself the right way because other drivers could draft up to you. You just had to be sure and time the blocks correctly. So what I sensed, Dan, and I don't know if you did too, was frustration from the drivers. Even Ryan Blaney, who won the race, his first multi-win season of his career, by the way, uh, I sensed frustration because the drivers were all pretty universal in saying, wow, the old package, definitely way more fun. What do you think, Dan? I think that this is why I feel like you're getting a change in a good bit of the schedule in what's coming for next year and and hereafter. I, I think that that one precipitated the other. I'm I'm kind of like Bud. The the way the racetrack that racetrack is designed, it's designed for to me. It's designed more for horsepower. Just because of the way the track's laid out, it it is different. After after going there the first time that we ever went there in the seventies and seeing that racetrack and knowing how fast that racetrack was, that it really lends itself to horsepower and aerodynamics and being able to be. It, it gave you a little bit of both. It was both an oval with a little bit of a super speedway designed where that you slingshot off the corners, you draft down the straightaways. The speeds were so fast at the end of the straightaways, handling played such a role in it. And as the cars yeah. have gotten slicker over the years and more aerodynamically uh, challenged, I guess, um, were, we miss that horsepower package there more so, I think, than just about anywhere. And, you know, California is going to change its configuration, I think, 2023 and downsize. And I think based on the engine packages have precipitated racetracks doing what they're having to do to keep the racing more exciting for the fans, if I might say that, because that to yeah. me is, is the challenge of where we're at today. Right. And, and the, the thing is, is there, it really, I don't think even myself, I mean, I think in the end, I would love to lean on the side of racing purity and, and be like, no, man, I want to see these cars. I want, I want to see engines that have the ability to push themselves to their limit and not be limited. Right. I want the image, the, the, and then thus the drivers really having to drive by the seat of their pants more 
And instead of just being stuck down to the racetrack and the high downforce, low horsepower take, stifles both of those elements. But at the same time, I can't say, and, and I was only able to, when the race was live, kind of parachute in, but it sounded very exciting on MRN. The lead seemed, the lead seemed attainable to the second place driver most of the time. And that's exciting to me. Although apparently, I mean, with this package, very hard to actually pass the leader. <laughs> Hence, only one green flag pass for the lead that wasn't because of pit stops or, or restart. And but it seemed, and then the finish was exciting. In fact, it was the closest finish in Michigan history. But what a purist would say is, hey, it's kind of a false read. You've created a scenario where the deficits are going to be small, but in surmount or surmounting that small deficit is extremely hard. And what we saw Ryan Blaney do is the same thing we saw Joey Logano do over a longer stretch at Kansas last fall, manipulate the air and keep the lead, even though you had a faster car behind you. And so Ryan Blaney, second win of the year, Roger Penske's home track, a track that Roger Penske used to own, right? Uh, that's a big deal yeah. for them. And Ryan Blaney is suddenly becoming more the most consistent of the Penske drivers as the others, as we'll learn, had some uh, mishaps through the race. And let's talk about that, boys, if you don't mind. The number one highlight from the race, if it wasn't the finish, would be what really looked like bizarre contact between the two-car Brad Keselowski and the three of Austin Dillon. And Austin Dillon right there in that playoff bubble was up there running for stage points, as what was at one point had almost completely passed his teammate Tyler Reddick to get that 16th playoff spot. And then as, as they got, he nets a top five finish there, finishing stage number two, he's running below below the white line on the apron, and Brad Kozlowski side-drafted him trying to get that stage point, and they make contact when Dylan comes back up the track after the checkered flag, and he turns right across Brad Kozlowski's nose and into the wall. A hard, hard impact. Of course, it ended his day, and he still gained three points on Tyler Reddick. He's now 25 in arrears of that 16th playoff position, but Oh gosh, Dan, what'd you think about that contact there? Were they, were they playing too rough? Should they still have thought, hey, there's another half a race to go? Or do you think this is a good byproduct of stage racing? And did you think any particular driver was more at fault there? I didn't think any particular driver was more at fault. And I think it has to do with the fact that you see now what it's going to mean to these drivers to get into the playoffs. And, and, and we knew that coming in. This is nothing new. It's just other factors are involved. And we don't know what other factors, because you and I both know that the the aerodynamics and, and the way these cars work with air around them, maybe one thing that was meant to do turned into something completely different and, and completely unknown of what was going to happen, as well as when you spray these tracks to get the grip. You don't know what you've created a lot of times or if that even plays anything to do with this whatsoever. But but I think it was a situation to where that as, as fast as these cars are at Michigan, I just can't believe that anyone would do anything as fast as these cars are and as aero-dependent as these cars are. I just think you get into a situation before you realize it and things happen that you did not anticipate. That's a good point. Bud, what did you think about the contact between the two and the three there? Well, I think Dan Dan nailed it with the, the aerodynamics uh, standpoint of this. You know, you got these cars glued down to the track, and then you've got one car that's on the flat part of the track down on the, on the inside, another car that's on the banking, 
And you've got who knows what the air is doing in that situation because you've got you've got one car at an angle and one almost flat, and they're trying to go by each other. And uh, you know, I, I think air has a lot to do with it. It's 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 stuff that's uh, hard to predict. Both drivers apologized. I think they were just racing, you know. Yeah, that's what it was. There was the aggressive side drafted coming to the start finish line, and Brad Keselowski felt especially bad about it, although. I mean, Dylan came up the track, and it was just like they were both in ultra-aggressive mode. Yeah, he could set the self-driving cars to be aggressive or not. They were just in ultra-aggressive mode going for the point, and it jumped Dylan's car before the, by the end of the day. And Kislowski didn't have a great race himself. He was never a part of the winning discussion. His teammate, Joey Logano, so Ryan Blaney wins. Kislowski involved in not uh, the photo finish you like. And then Joey Logano was up there fighting for the lead, and then he gets loose on a restart. Seems like he has the car saved, but because it's a restart, he's falling back into the beehive, and he turns around, and that contact ends up wrecking several cars, including his own. And so Logano's had just a couple of, kind of a bad stretch here, at least these last couple of weeks, is is out of contention, and again, it's Ryan Blaney that wins. I will say, in both of these races, whether it was Austin Sendrick and Brandon Brown, both losing it on an early restart in the Xfinity race and, and wadding up some stuff, and then what we saw in the cup race, Tyler Reddick also spun on a late restart toward the end. Uh, that, but he was able to gather his car up, and he finished 29th, I think it was, without because NASCAR didn't throw the yellow because he was able to save it. There, there was a lot of up and down. Usually these races, I think, are kind of vanilla, at, frankly, at, at Michigan. And that was not the case here at all on, on Saturday or Sunday. Uh, by the way, the Xfinity race, for those that didn't watch or hear, it went into triple overtime because they kept wrecking on those restarts. The cup race seemed like it was primed to do so because they had a little bit of rain that they did throw a yellow for, which did not do New Hampshire in time. But they had a little bit of rain that that paused the race, but it didn't have them throw a red flag. And then they were able to restart, and that's how Ryan Blaney kept the lead. So just some takeaways there. I want to go down the line and look at our next thoughts. So the trucks and the Xfinity, excuse me, the trucks and the Indy cars were at Worldwide Technology Speedway and Gateway. And they, they had themselves quite the throwdown as well. In the truck series, it was, uh, it, that, that race was also a bit of a bloodbath, so to speak. I use that, uh, that term a lot. And Sheldon Creed, last year's champion, ended up winning round one of the playoffs. But you had a bunch of trucks that were in the playoffs get wadded up and, and torn out early. You saw uh, Zane Smith have a uh, uh, mechanical issue there. And you saw Chandler, Chandler Smith have some issues and several others that crashed out. And, and John Hunter Nemechek, the hands-on favorite, go in, finishing 22nd with some mechanical issues of his own. And so they got topsy-turvied. And, guys, they lost power midway through that race. But for all that havoc that fell on there, there were not a lot of different leaders. Sheldon Creed led 142 laps. And then the next highest driver in laps led was Zane Smith with 19. So, I get. I don't think either of you guys watched that race, but it was pretty hectic there going into the playoffs. And and then just another thing to point out too, uh, Chandler Smith was our guest last week, so go back and listen to episode 145. He talks about that that team struggles, but how they turned it around. Well, they took a big step backwards. He and his teammate John Hunter Nemechek both in round one of the playoffs. And then with the IndyCar series, looked like Colton Herta, Bud had that one wrapped up. And then the mechanical gremlins bit him. So what were some of your thoughts for IndyCar? Well, the, the IndyCar race, uh, you know, Cole Herta, that, that race that he had in Nashville, you know, he had that, that race all but one until he locked up a wheel. And you, you just wonder, you know, he's, he's, 
he had this thing won until he had a mechanical problem. So it, it's, it's the, you know, it happens to everybody, I guess. But I, I, the way it changes the standing so much when you get to the end of the, the series, when you're in the championships, uh, if we can flash back to NASCAR for a minute, whoever thunk that Kevin Harvick huh? would, would be, you know, so far down the list as far as, you know, being in the mix and yeah. Tyler Reddick would be nipping at his heels, you know. Was, who would have thought that Kevin Harvick didn't clinch his spot in the playoffs until this race years old? <laughs> I mean, Kevin Harvick, yeah, if, if he had, if he, imagine him going into Daytona and if he had a surprise winner, him potentially getting knocked out, but he was able to gain enough points. And Tyler Reddick's in a position where if he finishes really high in the stages, it would pretty much only take a surprise winner, which you could definitely have at Daytona to knock him out. So you know that Reddick is going to be points racing there at Daytona because track position is easy to, to gain back at that super speedway track. For IndyCar guys, listen to this. Paddle Award, who I believe is his second-year driver, he's out of Mexico. He now leads the standings. Alex Pillow and Scott Dixon, who are second and fourth in points, they got taken out in a wreck with Rhinus VK, who made a pretty uh, three-wide move on a really hairy restart there at Gateway, and the restarts were hairy in the Indy cars. So Alex Pillow loses the points lead. He's now 10 points behind Paddle Award. Joseph Newgarden ended up winning the Gateway race and is now vaulted to third in the standings. He's only 22 points out of the lead with three races to go. Scott Dixon, who I thought would be the championship favorite there, I think he was at one point, he's fourth. And Marcus Erickson, listen, the former IndyCar driver, excuse me, the former Formula One driver who's managed to win his first two career races this season, including that crazy one in Nashville where he got all the way up in the air and landed back on all four wheels. Marcus Erickson is fifth in points, only 60 out. And listen to the drivers that Erickson is ahead of. All of these are IndyCar regulars. You would expect to at least sniff the title. Colton Herta, Simon Pagano, Graham Rahal, Will Power, Takuma Sato, Alexander Rossi, Ryan hunter Ray, Scott McLaughlin. I mean, that's a, that's quite a list, Rhinus VK, to be ahead of there for, for a guy that I thought was going to be lucky to even be able to stay in IndyCar. So that, that's pretty big stuff. These These guys, Dan, don't have playoffs. The IndyCar series does not have playoffs, and yet here's how close their points are, and and they seem to have hit on the right package. It doesn't seem like every car can win every week or something, Dan, but they it seems to me that they're set that they are very close together. Yeah, that's that's another thing, and and where IndyCar has really come along extremely well, you know. It's it's something that that I didn't follow as much until the past year or two, but the the competition level in this has really really blossomed, and the excitement level with that has really blossomed as well. And the race that they had that was that was Indy. They ran at Nashville, so you know that. They're really bringing that along with a lot of these other races combination-wise, and I think it's adding a flavor to it that we've not been used to, and and for the race fans that I know have been extremely excited about it. For sure. It's definitely a very likable series to watch. By the way, Formula One and its tight points battle and all of it is Formula One. They come back from their break this week as well. Let me, let me pull F1 up so I can – 
make sure and get uh, get everything correct here. But Lewis Hamilton took the points leads two or three weeks ago, two or three ra- two races ago, I think it was. And they are going to be at the Belgian Grand Prix on Sunday. So I will definitely have a little more about that in next week's Five to Go episode. I want to jump back into the Cup Series here because the one one bit of the points that was very close, I'm not talking about the playoffs here, but playoff implications is the regular season championship. And it's been a duke out between Denny Hamlin and Kyle Larson. And they entered the Indy Road Course race tied in points. They are now 28 points apart. Of course, Hamlin lost a ton of ground. In the skirmish on the last lap with Chase Briscoe, and then Larson ran a little better than Hamlin and Michigan, so now they're 28 points apart. And looking ahead to Daytona, the top 10 in the standings bring some sort of playoff bonus points based on where they finish in that Daytona race. So you have uh, first and second are separated by 28 points, and then you have to jump. That's pretty well decided, because then you have to jump Gosh, almost 140 points more back to Kyle Busch, who's third in the standings. Kyle Busch, though, only has a five-point lead over William Byron in fourth and only an 18-point lead over Chase Elliott in fifth. So third through fifth in the points, racing at Daytona very close, where it could change dramatically. Those are the difference between bonus points because they count down. You have 15 for the regular season Cup Series championship leader that you could take those 15 points into the bone, the uh, playoffs that roll over. And then as you finish in the points within the top 10, it goes from 15 to 10 and then decreases down to one. Brad Kozlowski has 10th place well in hand there. He's two, he's, uh, almost what, 80 points or so ahead, 70 points, excuse me, 50 points ahead of Tyler Reddick for that. So it would take a miracle for Tyler Reddick to pass Brad Kozlowski in the overall season standings. But, that, that'll be something that's kind of hard, guys, to cap, keep track of, but something that'll play into the factor, I think, of the finishes at Daytona, where they'll be trophy hunting. And then I want to talk a little bit, too, as we just d- dig a little deeper, that we talked last week about charter silly season because of the rumor about Denny Hamlin and his 2311 racing team buying potentially front row motorsports or leasing a charter for them or something like that. And that that hasn't gone anywhere, that rumor, except, I mean, Michael McDowell has spoken. Yeah, he was asked directly about his ride situation for next year. Keep in mind, this is Michael McDowell that won the Daytona 500 and Michael McDowell that is in the playoffs. And and he said that he and his team owner, Bob Jenkins, uh, are in agreement on trying to put something together for next year. But he sounded a lot less certain about that ride scenario than he did earlier in the year, which makes me think there's something in the works at Front Row Motorsports, but I want to talk about a different slice of silly season, and that's spotter swapping. Now, uh, Dan, in your days with the Elliott Racing Team, at what point did y'all even start having spotters? Was there a point in the 80s where they didn't have them, or do you know when they became required? I don't know when they became required, but, um, yeah, you'd go to a road course, and road course was usually where you needed a spotter at. But, you know, the spotter was more than on anything. That role kind of has, has evolved over time. And and it began more so than anything just as a spotter's job probably started out being. And that was to, if, if you saw anything on the track, that the driver needed to know about it, it wasn't necessarily what was behind you as much as it was what was in front of you. So oh, yeah. it, it, it evolved over time as a safety, safety, pure safety, because 
if there was something that the driver needed to know that was, uh, if it was a road course and, and there was obviously a, a wreck, obviously the flags came out, but you don't know how close you were to that. You also needed to know what length of time you thought that the caution would be out for. Is it going to be a quick caution? Is it going to be a slow caution? That'll determine what we need to do, what we can do, and uh, whether or not maybe the whole field may do a pit stop, which is, is going to determine whether maybe you get two tires, maybe you get four tires. So this has evolved over time, and spotter has become very, very important for a number of reasons, safety first, but also, too, a uh, good spotter can definitely either uh, he can either help you win a race or he can help you lose a race. Well, for sure, especially when you have the cars so packed together as they are. Double file restarts, which weren't a thing until about, uh, I think, 2009 or 10, right? The, the double file restarts. And then, of course, when you have races like Michigan where you're manipulating the air so much. So that, so they, they, they had a more two-dimensional factor during your heyday, Dan. And what they've become now is very, I mean, they're, they're looking at the SMT data with the crew chief, or the crew chief is talking to the spotter on channel two and saying, hey, it looks like he's losing time entering turn one. Maybe tell him to arc his turn more, or tell him to enter at a lower point, or whatever it is. They're, they're, they're passing that information on so the spotter can talk to the driver. So the spotter is like this, I mean, is the hack to the racetrack and is also watching the lap times of what other drivers that are doing that are having success, telling the, telling their driver how successful they are or not. And then they're, they're trying to give the tips like, Hey, the 18 car is entering turn three high and is, is, you know, he's the only one that's using the high line or something like that. So they, they've definitely evolved much more into the technique of driving. And that's why the relationship is so important. Not to mention just the lingo, you know, what about the spotter's voice or the driver's voice, what they're feeling. Well, we've known well now for a couple of months that Brad Kozlowski is going to go to Roush Fenway Racing, become a part owner and be a driver. And it's, it's kind of a toss up whether a driver brings their spotter with them or not. Sometimes the spotter stays with the team and sometimes they go with the driver. In this case, uh, it wasn't obvious, and that wasn't even on my mind, what was going to happen. Ryan Newman and Jason Jarrett are the driver-spotter combo in the sixth car that Brad's going to drive. Well, uh, TJ Majors, as he said on the Door Bumper Clear spot, uh, Spotters podcast, that's super popular from Dirty Mo Media, that I think has made fans even more aware of how important spotters are. TJ Majors said he was called into a meeting last Tuesday and said that jo- Joey Logano wanted to start using Brad Keselowski's spotter, Coleman Presley. And Coleman Presley and Logano are buddies, and they've ne- they've not worked together much in the spotter driver realm, and they decided to go that direction. And this is after Logano poached T.J. Majors after Dale Jr.'s retirement to get to to upgrade on the spotter side. So that was a big deal. And and, and Brad, meanwhile, and T.J. Majors are buddies, and they're going to pair up and go to Roush Fenway next year. But here's the thing that's interesting, guys, and I want to pitch this to you, Bugs. You know a lot of the crew members over the years. They decided to make the switch this weekend for Michigan. They didn't decide to start doing it next year. They decided to do a mid-season and just flip the light switch and go. So I was curious about that. I mean, at first, you know, first I thought, are there some hard feelings here or something? Or do you think that's wise to be getting ready for next year, right before the playoffs this year? I don't. I don't. You know, I don't, I don't know what goes on behind the scenes with the drivers and the spotters, but it is. Uh, it is certainly interesting that in the beginning of the show, Dan was talking about the history and, you know, how the drivers that we have now, you know, were, were on the, on the, 
the backs of the people that made this sport. You know, before we had spotters, before we had all of this stuff going on, the driver had to drive the car, you know, and he had to follow the flag man. Now, now it's just become so much involved, so much more involved in getting the car around the track. So many people are involved in it now. Uh, and you got spotters making deals with, uh, you know, back and forth on the spotter stand. And I, you know, I'm not sure all of that should, uh, should even enter into it, but where, where you start changing, you know, spotters before the end of the, the year, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to help you with the championship. Well, Joe, Joe Logano sure thought it might. I mean, and I guess, I mean, I guess he trusts, I mean, to, the, he's the one or the 22 team is the one that decided to go with that change before it seemed to me. My first thought on this, guys, was Brad's the lame duck driver. Brad's not going to have, you know, Brad's going to get the short end of the stick on a lot of things now, even though they're all three Pinsky cars are going for the championship. It's hard not to see it that way. And here's a situation where I thought, man, like Brad's getting forced to change his spot or midseason. And they were afraid that Brad was going to take Coleman Presley, who I think his contract was up also with him to Roush Fenway. And Joey wanted to make sure that didn't happen. He saw an opportunity to start having his buddy, the former driver, Coleman Presley, be a spotter. And Brad, meanwhile, is is not getting a downgrade by T.J. Majors. But, Dan, I just found that interesting, man. What about you? Yeah, I find it interesting as well. And I was, I was trying to go back and think about how things evolved. And it's it's one of those situations where before spotters, it was the crew chief that was keeping up you you tried to position yourself as a crew chief and and that's how the pit wagons got so so tall in the beginning where you could stand on those and have a view of the track and and your crew chief ended up basic he started out as your spotter in the beginning that that was how you kept up with things because the crew chief kept you apprised of who you were running down or who you were ahead of, the intervals between them, your tire situation. He kept you up to speed on on most everything that went on, everything that the driver wanted to know, because here's where you had different drivers that, okay, some drivers didn't like to be talked to. In other words, they might get into the race and and they turned the radio off because (laughs) they didn't want to hear anything except they wanted to focus on what they were doing. So they turned the radio off, and and when they got through the part of the the battle, so to speak, that that they were having on the track, or it was getting close to time, they'd turn radio back on, or they would tune you out and say, "Don't even talk to me. Just just let me run my race. I'm doing everything that I can do." So it it evolved from that in the beginning because. You've got to go back even before radios, and and if you caught that movie Ford versus Ferrari, oh man, where yeah, you didn't where where you didn't have radios. Now when radios came in, what a luxury that was! You, uh, yeah, you now for sure. could communicate most of the time with the driver, but where the where the spotter or the intermediary kind of got involved in the beginning was you go to a track that was big, like Daytona, like Talladega like Riverside where this track was so huge that you could not get radio signal to all areas of the track. That, so that's a great that point, yeah. Kinda, yeah, that, yeah, that kind of started all of that process, and then radios got a little bit better in the meantime, 
not only in clarity, but also to in range, because um, I think some of the tracks we went to, we had a repeater to where that the signal is basically like the signal on a uh, bounced off of a, not off a mountain per se, but you had a repeater on the truck that amplified the signal to where that you could get that signal no matter where he was on the track. Right. But, but the spotter kind of evolved from that. And this, this really did change everything, Doug. It, it really did change everything. And, and, and as Bud said, it, it's so complicated anymore because now crew chiefs, car chiefs, you, you've got all of these people that now factor in to the total operation of running a race. Right. And, and I mean, and there's also a lot of other communicating that goes on between not the driver and other people, but between the crew chief and the engineers and people that are in other hubs back at the race shop. When crew chiefs get suspended now, they can still instant message or text or use whatever messaging software to talk with the team and still influence decisions. And likewise, crew chiefs strategy decisions are influenced by whatever the AI software. I mean, Richard Childress Racing uses one called Pit Row, I believe that's called that they they use to put all these things together and come up with their decisions of how to execute a race. So that yeah, that's all very, very good information there. And it also shows too, if you it it makes it so any one part of that process if you changed it out was maybe less important. If you've suddenly got say six people either communicating or strategizing, I'm just making up a number about one particular car's outcome. If you change one of those, you're only changing one sixth of it. Whereas if you change the crew chief in 1987, that's like the only person communicating with the driver or something, right? I mean, it's a little bit of a difference. So uh, these days you, you can't, you can't just jump on the radio and start talking to the driver. I don't care who you are. There, there has to be a process to this, or everybody's going to talk over everyone else. And by that time, either the wreck has already happened or the, or the opportunity has passed. So there is a chain in this that has to be followed. And there are other communications going on but they're definitely on other frequencies other than the driver spotter frequency. Well, there will be a lot to be decided at the Penske camp next year. The spotter part, at least for the two drivers, is figured out, but you've got Todd Gordon, who is retiring, at least for being a full-time crew chief from Ryan Blaney's ride, and so he'll have that crew chief position open. You have Jeremy Hassler, who's the interim crew chief on the 21 car. Keep in mind, Austin Cedric is being promoted to the Cup Series in the two car next year, so there's going to be a whole different dynamic with that team. And then Harrison Burton goes to the 21. So you've got, do drivers bring their own spotters? Which crew chief's going where? And Penske just switched up the crew chief and teams of the three main teams in their shop, not including the 21 Wood Brothers team, before last season. So there'll be some more upheaval in the Penske ranks here before 2021 happens. But I was surprised to see that change happen mid-season. And TJ Major said on the day of the uh, Door Bumper Clear podcast, he didn't, he wasn't completely 100% surprised that it was going to happen sometime, but he was surprised it happened that quickly. So that found that odd because he and Joey get along very well. They're not buddies outside of the track, but they, they have a very good working relationship. And if you listen to TJ Majors, when he was Dale Jr.'s guy or TJ's guy or he, when he does Haley Deegan and trucks, he's phenomenal. 
on the radio. He's as good as they get. But Coleman Presley is also extremely descriptive too. So interesting. You got to wonder. You got to. You have to wonder also, Doug and Dan, how how the outcome of some of these races, especially the the race uh, last week, and how that how that has be, become affected by radios because you. You know, you have a lot of frequencies, you have team orders, you have a, a lot of stuff going on that, you know, the, the driver doesn't necessarily hear about. But what if they couldn't have, uh, what if they couldn't have talked to the drivers last week? Uh, God. you know, when, uh, I'm trying to think who ran who off the track last week. Now, when Hamlin, uh, took Briscoe down off the yeah. track, in my opinion, but you know, how, how would that been affected if they didn't have radio communications? Would they, would they have raced the race differently? You know, it, it, it changes the outcome completely, Dan. It's an interesting point you bring up as it's evolved. It's it's not just about the driver and where his car is. There's so many other communications going on. Yep, there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes that, that not many people know about. And, and the thing about it is it used to be that the crew chief and the driver were the communicators. Now it looks like the driver and the spotter are the communicators. But there are other things going on on other channels yep. that that are definitely leading up to whatever is being talked about between the driver and the spotter. I very much recommend anybody listening to pay the little bit of money it is every year. I think it's seventy or eighty bucks to get the full scanner service from NASCAR.com and to be able to listen to it at home. It, it's it really gives you another layer of understanding to the races. And you hear a lot of times the spotter and the crew chief talking back and forth, even openly criticizing or or being critical of the driver. You know, and you're going, and at first, my first thought was, oh, my God, they're just talking crap about this guy right in his ear. And you remember, no, no, there's Channel 2. <laughs> they're talking on Channel 2. You know, and, and, and a lot of times the driver will bark something out and go, right around loose, or, you know, whatever. And then, and then the crew chief may say, you know, I'm just going to pick Kevin Harvick's team. You know, Rodney Childers might say, hey, Tim, what did he say? And Tim, and Tim will either relay back to Rodney what he said, or then Tim will get on the radio and ask Harvick what he said. So there's not a lot of different, you know, not a lot of, not a lot of different voices in Kevin Harvick's head, just as an example. But anyway, changes this there is, with the this two. Is why, this is why it's important that you and your spotter have to have a relationship to where that you know that there's things at times you've got to be able to talk about and you can't take this crap personally on what anybody blurts out or says out or or how calmly things are on the radio you've got to be able to process this stuff very quickly and you you you've got to know this person really really well and know their communication skill as to make sure that what they see and what they say on the radio is exactly the same thing. Well, just like with anything with the race car, that stuff is refined. The drivers and spotters, the good ones anyway, they meet up and they go over a game plan every week. And certainly if it's a new combination, they have some more in-depth talks and go over video and all of that. So good good discussion there. I want to jump in quick because I think this next topic, fourth out of five here, we'll see if we get to the fifth one. But uh, this next topic is prickly. It's hard to discuss. It evokes a lot of emotions, but it very well, just as the spotter situation does, it very well affects the product on the track, and that is the increasing imprint of COVID at NASCAR. One thing that we haven't seen change really too much, except for being able to interact with drivers, is the fan experience. There hasn't been any talk yet 
of decreasing capacity of races now that there is a widely available vaccine. They're not talking about having 50% crowds or something at Daytona or anything like that. They, but the driver interaction with fans is now either at a distance or not at all. And, and also the you know, media members are still allowed to interview drivers, but it has to be outside of with a mask on. There are no guests allowed in the, the, the garage stalls and inside the haulers. But here's where we get to the nitty gritty. What happens outside the racetrack? What happens when a driver is exposed to somebody with COVID and does having a vaccine or not impact how much they have to quarantine and whether they could be in the race or not? And we found that question out pretty early in this, guys. Corey LaJoy had to miss Sunday's race. Josh Berry drove the number seven Spire Motorsport Chevy because Corey LaJoy did his Stack and Pennies podcast and another person in the room was positive for COVID. That person didn't know they were positive. They tested positive two days later, I think. But because Corey had not been vaccinated, it meant he had to do a mandatory seven-day quarantine, even though he didn't have a positive test, and he missed a race. And so what it led to is, of course, a lot of the media, and they sh- and I think they should have been asking the question to drivers, what do they think about these protocols, and are they vaccinated or not? Because we saw the choice of not being vaccinated directly affect a driver being in a race, and it does make a difference because if a driver is vaccinated, guys, they have they have to only quarantine. I think it's three to five days. I I, I got to look it up, but it's either three or five days and have a negative test, and they're back in the car. But in Corey's case, it was a mandatory seven day quarantine and missing a race because he didn't have the vaccine. And so it started making drivers. Drivers went to NASCAR apparently on Friday and had a call with them and was trying to lobby the sport to not make the having a vaccine or not make a difference. And NASCAR said, no, we're sticking with these rules. This is what's keeping us on the track, and this is what the CDC recommends. Uh, I don't know who to go to first on this, just to get some thoughts. We're not going to solve vaccine hesitancy or solve overreach or privacy or anything here. But, Bud, when you hear people, and by the way, crew members, uh, the, the Kyle Busch's spotter, Tony Hirschman, missed the race, COVID protocols. Ryan Flores, one of Brad Kozlowski's crew members, was on that same podcast of Corey LaJoy. He missed the race this past weekend. And there was another crew member or two. We've also seen crew members over the last couple of weeks miss races for not even necessarily positive tests always, but I'll just say in quotes, COVID protocols. Bud, to you, some thoughts. Well, I know I know for a fact that some of the team's road guys have not been to the shop all year uh, for that very reason, because they're on the road and they're susceptible to being with a lot of people. Uh, and they don't want them in the shop. Um, and they have other duties. They've assigned, they've assigned their duties differently than what it used to be, you know, during the week. And, and everybody's, you know, doing fine. I think what a driver has to look at is no different, Doug, than what you, me, or Dan have to look at when you start considering vaccines and things. We have a job, uh, per se, and we have a responsibility to our family. In the case of these drivers, they have a responsibility to people that are putting up big chunks of money and, right. you know, they're responsible to them as, as well. And, and I, so Joey Logano said as much, Joey Logano was one of the few, few drivers that went on the record about whether he was vaccinated or not. Most people are not answering the question. They're saying it's my business, not yours. Right. Joey Logano said, based on what I saw happen, and I'm paraphrasing, based on what he saw happen with Corey LaJoy, and it determined his decision to get vaccinated this week. Because he literally said, my decision to be in a race car or not puts food on people's tables or not. I've got to go do it. 
Frankly, I was surprised that there's so many drivers that are so evasive about it, <laughs> about the issue. I know it's a prickly issue, but uh, it, may, it leads me to believe that a lot of drivers aren't vaccinated. But Joey Logano actually openly, openly saying, here's what I'm doing, because whether I want to or not, I got to get to the racetrack. That, that, I think that's going to say a lot, and it's probably going to change a lot of minds there, to your point, bud. Dan, what are some of your thoughts here? Well, Doug, it's, it's definitely a personal choice, and, and each driver has to weigh out for them personally what, you know, how they've had to talk to their family and, and what their points of view are, and then consider everything, not just the team, but families and 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 work and and you you've got to divide all this out and and you're just that's just going to have to be a personal choice you're going to have to make based on the decisions as as they're brought but the consequences have to be weighed in as well and I don't know any other way to do it because I'm no different as a fan coming into the racetrack I'm no different you know how much do I want to be exposed if they're letting all the people in, then it's my choice whether I go or don't go or where I choose to, not where I choose to sit, maybe where I buy my ticket, but um, or maybe where I do, maybe I go into the infield and stay in the infield. All this has to be a personal choice and what you're willing to do. And with the situation, I'm looking at, we talked before the show on, on how it's it's affected me uh pretty doggone close in in family and even friends that I have now. So yeah, this weighs on you. I don't care who you are. Yeah, for sure. Well it's good that it's being talked about and I I do hope that that the more more people will, will act in a safer manner because the way it seemed to go is regardless of whether people have vaccines or not, a lot of the protocols were over with. And what we're finding out is, of course, having a vaccine is not 100% guaranteed that you are going to get the virus or not, but the chances of you being in the hospital are dramatically decreased and having big-time symptoms. But I know people that have gotten the vaccine that have some symptoms and, and tested positive and all that. So it is it is really difficult, but I'm hoping at least uh, we want this sport to stay racing, and we don't want a potential – we don't want drivers missing races because of this. We've had several this year that have missed races because of COVID-19. Chase Purdy just missed the last truck race for that very reason. Justin Haley missed a truck and a cup, yeah, an Xfinity and a cup race for that same reason earlier in the year. And there have been some others too, and some last season also, including Jimmy Johnson. So lot, lots to consider there, but a good, good insight from you guys. And as, before we get ready to go, as we look ahead, we've been looking in the here and now very closely, but as we look ahead, the 2022 NASCAR schedule has still not dropped yet. It didn't drop until fairly late last year, I think almost September, and it had some major changes on it. I see rumors out there about Gateway potentially getting a cup race. There's always the ever-present Nashville rumor or the Nashville street course or Nashville fairgrounds. I don't think the fairgrounds is going to have a cup race next year. There's the Chicago street course idea that floats out and any number of things. What I want to do is ask you the question, you, Dan, first. You haven't been the former uh, track promoter and president at Gresham Motorsports Park. Dan, what does it say to you that we're so deep into the season again and there's still not a schedule in our inbox? You know, I think that um, 
I've, I've tried to keep up as much as I can with the testing of the new car, and still I, I allude back to what we talked about several shows ago, that because of COVID concerns, concerns, mind you, that that this may or may not be what's holding up some of the scheduling because maybe maybe I'm reading into something into this that that's not not there yet, but I don't know if it has to do with the new car coming yet if if everything is going as scheduled with the gen seven car well, that certainly has been bantied about for sure, Bud, the first thing you think of when you don't have a schedule sitting in front of you on nascar.com <laughs> well, the first thing I thought of was they don't know what they're racing next year. And we are, you know, I mean, the type of vehicle they're racing. Yeah, what car? And like Dan pointed out, if there's shortages in getting the parts to the, the, you know, the uh, teams and the chassis and stuff and the cars themselves, and that, you know, the testing is behind on the cars. Um, yeah. You know, is this a, is this a car that we want to take to the super speedway for its first outing? Uh, you know, all, all of those things, I think, factor into it. Um and I think it would definitely change the schedule if we knew more about the new car. Uh, when you talk about going to some other venues and stuff like that, you know, NASCAR still owns road courses that are real road courses that these cars uh-huh. can go to if they were, if they were, you know, had some, some laps under their, under their tires, uh, so to speak. So I, th- I think it's very dependent upon the car right now because we don't, we don't know what the product's going to look like. And I wanted to ask you one more question. Bouncing back to something Dan said about IndyCar racing, how long was the IndyCar race this week? I look, I think I think it's about 200 miles, maybe. Let me let me just make yeah, sure. Yeah. I, how many how many, uh, how many segments did we have in the race? <laughs> it was uh, 500. It was called a 500. I think it was 500 kilometers. Yeah, but how how many how many uh, how many segments did we have? How did, how did yeah, we split they, it up? They have no stage racing in IndyCar. Oh, oh my goodness, no stage miles. racing. Yeah, I had okay. a feeling that was No stage right. racing, and they have shorter races. What a concept. Just I, saying, I, yeah, the product's <laughs> getting better. Yeah. Hey, sometimes, I mean, look, uh, sometimes IndyCar races are dr- drawn out. This These last couple have not been. So you bring up some good points, bud, and you bring up something that has been floated out there and I, and now I'm tying, putting the dots together because when I first heard this, I did not think about it in relation to the new car. But there has been a rumor just kind of in the ether that Daytona could potentially not be the season leadoff race going forward or sometime in the future. And if you had a part shortage and you let off the year with a race that just had calamity and shoes up race cars and has teams sometimes trashing two and three cars down there, well... You don't want to do that with a with a car that you could barely fab out, you know, barely have the parts for. So that that's that's interesting that you bring that up. It wouldn't would and would it guys would it change the sparkle of the Daytona 500 to have it not be the first race? It I mean Dan in your era, I don't know what year it became the first race, but it, it was in it wasn't until the late 80s early 90s that it even was the first race, right? So does that change it for you? No, it doesn't change it for me, but I, I did enjoy going down there in February and it being somewhat warm most of the time. So I've been down yeah. there frozen to death, but but the weather kind of dictates because after Daytona, I think we got into that swing of there were 
four races seems like because we had Rockingham, Richmond, Atlanta, and maybe one more. And I know, Bud, I know you can remember these races. You were um, you were either snowed out, rained out, <laughs> froze out. Yeah. Um, how many how many different scenarios could you have? Because weather pretty much dictated kind of to me how the schedule got laid out and and somebody went brain dead after daytona uh, that's pretty funny well and, and look you have the option if you started the year you could start the year at homestead or the daytona road course and stay in florida and then you know then go to california and then come back i mean you know i, mean, I don't know how many races you want to do and how you want how people want to stack it to make that work but you, you could at least have two races before daytona and still be in the same or better better weather in Miami, right? So, well, well you got only, better logistics. Go ahead, bud. Well, not only that, I'm thinking if 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 they squeak, you know, these new cars out and everybody's got a brand new car, I I, I just I don't think it's smart to race it at Daytona. I think I'd rather be at a road course or something with it to ring the car out before you get it on a super speedway. That's that's just me. And I think NASCAR probably they're waiting to make that the last ditch effort because I think the last thing NASCAR wants to do is have that car be delayed anymore and have a mixed rollout. And think about the teams too that we, and we talked about this already a couple of shows ago. But think about the teams that they're trying to play out for next year. And if they're you barely even have a new car to develop, but you were banking on the idea of just having that inventory, and now you've got to keep your old inventory up to speed. Very literally, right? Keep that, 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 that's a lot to consider. And are, you know, will, what will practice and qualifying look like next year? With a new car, you're going to have to have some of that, uh, but, but they're not doing it this year to save money. So yeah, glad it's there's, not my there's decision. A lot of things, yeah, there's a lot of things to consider. The logistics of this, even though the logistics is pretty expensive on, on moving this stuff across across the country and doing certain things, it's definitely easier than it was because you've probably got more and more of the key personnel that are staying in motorhomes, coaches, so forth. So the logistics of trying to get accommodations for everyone at hotel, motel, or things like that has changed your your length of time at the races has certainly helped that because now you may fly a crew out and even if they have to stay a night you're you're not in the logistical situation of of more than that probably and and you can make accommodations a whole lot more suitable and with the advent of being able to fly you you've got so many things that you don't have to do that you used to have yeah. to do it's it, to me the logistics of that has made it easier to where that you could schedule different things and not be a hardship so to speak yeah that's a great point for as as bougie as having a motorhome is if you're not worried about staying in uh, your main principles staying uh staying if you're not worried about your main principal staying in hotels and they can stay right at the track, that that takes care of a lot of the problem right there. Well, great stuff discussed, and this is why I wanted to ask the question because really, 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 the 
the big issue, so to speak, when you ask about the schedule is not so much, oh, which tracks are we going to? Are we going to have more road courses or more short tracks or whatever, street courses? No, it's what is it really saying? And it might be saying more about the question mark on the car. Great, great analysis for both of you who are mechanically minded. Bud, with your ear in the garage. Dan, with your knowledge of the race cars and your history of both running racetracks and running at them for many years and all the success. This is why 5 to Go is the deal to listen to. And I'm so lucky to sit here and just soak up this knowledge from y'all. Be sure to like our Facebook page, 5 to Go Racing Podcast. It, mainly what I do is put the new episodes up, but when you all comment on their good and bad, I try to interact with you there. And sometimes we'll share new stories. And we'll be back some, at some point next week. Eric Von Hester's had a, a, just a, a weird schedule all over the place and doing several things inside and outside the radio station. That's kept him away, but I look forward to having his uh, expert opinion back into this thing, or as he, he will say soundly, he is not an expert, but his fan analysis back in this very soon. So any parting shots there, Mr. Bud Hughes? Uh, no, just say hey to the other Western New Yorker for me. <laughs> yeah, and you've been you've been on once with him, haven't you? Or or is it, have you only ever filled in for him? No, no, I just fill in with him. One of these days we'll, we'll cross paths. We used to go to the same racetracks to fifteen years ago. You know, fifteen years apart, but same racetracks. But, <laughs> he, but and he no, I just enjoy I enjoy coming on when I can, and I do stay in touch with a lot of people that are still on the teams, and and um, you know it's it's a it's a very fluid situation with the. Uh, with these teams now, I know it was bad enough. It was hard enough when I was teaching, and they would change principles uh, every year. I mean, principles as far as owners and 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 people at the at the various shops. Uh, yeah. But now it's now it's like a daily thing. Ah, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, I'm just I'm just happy to be here, and and uh, you know, with you and Dan. Hey, we're happy to be here too, buddy. Happy to have you here. Hey, uh, Dan, any parting thoughts from you, sir? No, I'm just hoping that the weather cools off sometime here pretty quickly to where that we can get out of the heat heat and humidity. Ain't that the truth. Yeah, well, I, I say ain't that the truth. I know you and most people feel that way. I'm one of the few that loves it, but I'm also standing here in the air conditioning, so I guess I, I shouldn't say that too much. But, Dan, thank you so much for making time there. I know you have to do a lot of finagling with your schedule, and Bud, you have to also. Be sure to listen for Bud's Garage. Uh, the best way, I think, to tell people, Bud, is just to go to Access D-U-N, or Access W, sorry, Access North Georgia, their website, and find the show uh, podcast, and it's also on Saturday afternoons. Right, Bud? Yep, it's on at noon, and, uh, you know, podcast worldwide, so there you go worldwide amen to that well thank you so much both of you guys for joining it's traffic time for me so i'm gonna have to jump off and do that and be sure to enjoy the race at daytona this weekend we'll be back next week to digest that and make sure we have the full playoff preview ready for you right here on the five to go racing podcast for bud hughes dan elliott and eric von hessler who couldn't be on here today i'm doug turnbull and thank you all for listening to five to go